You are listening to the One Day at a Time podcast. On this podcast, my guests share their stories of alcoholism, addiction, and how they recovered so that you can too. My hope is that you find the inspiration and resources you need to let go of what's holding you back so that you can transform into the person you were always meant to be. Ready? Here we go. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Arlene, for having me. So good to see you. I know. So good to see you, too. Um, You were on my podcast when your first, was it your first book or just your latest book? My first debut book. Mother Load. Um, I just thought it was such a clever title because it had like a hamper, (laughs) a laundry hamper, basket, whatever, on the front. And you told some funny ass stories. I'm not going to lie. Um, I will never forget that line. I think you shot somebody and you're like, ah, just wing the bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, Wendy's my spirit animal. We're going to be, <laughs> we're going to be friends forever. So funny. Well, um, I, 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 let me just, um, just give a little background information. <laughs> yeah. Cause that sounds like real, like I'm, they're about to hear from a very crazy woman, <laughs> which she was back she in was. the early nineties. Uh, and as she was in a Wendy, that being me, was in a drug-induced psychosis from mm. doing meth and not sleeping for two weeks and found out her husband was cheating on her. So, you know, I couldn't have that. So, so you was crazy. <laughs> I was crazy. Certifiably. Certifiably. Listen, I don't blame you. <laughs> I'm team Wendy, so there's that. <laughs> Um, wow. Yeah. So yeah, your, your first book, Mother Load did really well. It's part of the quit lit, uh, landscape literature now. So, so happy that you're back and you've um, written another book. It's so amazing. Another book, Encourageable. Does it have like a little subtitle to it? Um, yes. What is the Encourageable? Let me see. I think you're going to give me a definition too. Well, let me give you the definition. Okay. Uh, I was labeled incorrigible as a teenager. And then definition of incorrigible is not able to be corrected, improved, or reformed. (gasps) So that is the label, you know, they put on me when I was a teenager. And they still put on kids that are going into the juvenile justice system. It's um, incorrigible is a coming of age memoir of a loss, addiction, and incarceration. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's labeling you as hopeless. Hopeless. What did that do to you as a teen? How, like we're talking teenager, how old were you? I was about, I think 14 or 15. (gasps) And I was like plucked from my uh, lifestyle, which is somewhat a privilege um, in Santa Monica, plucked out of there and had to learn how to navigate the criminal justice system of probation officers, juvenile hall, foster homes, mm. you know, mental institutions. One of the same mental institutions my mother had frequent, frequented. Wow. And if, if I could, like, just in timeline, uh, Mother Lode was something that was just needed to come out of me. I had to get it done. But if if I had a choice, I would have written 
if I would have known I was going to be writing other books, I would have done incorrigible because it's a prequel to Motherload. Yeah, really. Do you feel like Motherload had to come out because as you were raising kids, just all the guilt and shame was that most pressing for you? It was, yeah, it was burning. Yeah. It was just burning in me to get out, you know, and I like, you know, didn't have a lot of plans, you know, to become um, a writer, but I knew that I was supposed to write this book. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I'm on my third book now, which is documents my 20s, which was even it's crazy. It's crazy as well. I cannot but, wait. The oh, stories you must have. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, inc- you know, I mean, um, that they would label me something like um, beyond, beyond reform. And here I am, you know, if I could go back to, you know, those people and the people that are labeling kids that are dealing with trauma, I, th- I think that, you know, we, we've progressed enough in society to change the language These and to a trauma-informed, uh, you know, approach to adolescents that are going into the system because they're coming from broken homes, they're coming from incest, from violence. And, and to say that about a kid and stamp them with that, you know, it's, it's beyond me. So wrong on so many levels. You know who does trauma-informed um, work is, especially in like, um, I want to say jails and stuff, is Dr. Stephanie Covington. Heard of her. I yeah, she's she's the one that wrote A Woman's Way Through the 12 Steps like 25, yeah, yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah, she's super yeah. cool, but she does trauma-informed, like I want to say, legislation or policy that's the word i was searching for policy trauma informed policy because it does you know when you talk about little kids that are coming out of these horrible situations that you mentioned they're gonna act out they're gonna be pissed with no tools to resolve that anger and they're gonna do stuff right and to label them and and condemn them for the rest of their lives or whatever i mean beyond reform that's insane. I mean, I was running away. I was like running away. I was getting high too and drinking and taking pills, but yeah. I was running away from a place where I didn't feel safe, you know? And that's what kids do, you know, or not all kids, but some kids just, um, you know, they respond to the trauma differently. Right. But I acted out the family rage and started running and, and um, getting into trouble. You know, because I didn't know how to metabolize my emotions, my grief of having lost a mother at seven years old to suicide, you know, that I talk about in mother load. Um, And as I was saying earlier, that mother load was, um, you know, something that I needed to get out. It was about my mother and if incorrigible is more about my father. It's about my father And um, as I was saying that writing this book, I wrote it during COVID, uh, it really gave me insight to what he must have gone through as a father who lost his wife, had four kids to raise a widower. He's got four kids to raise. You know, it's the 50s. It's the 60s. And, you know, it's a time where, you know, trauma is not a word that people use it's not even on someone's radar 
oh, they're kids, they'll get over it, you know? So I really, I did a deep dive um, into, you know, what he must have felt like. And therefore I tapped into more empathy and more, even more forgiveness for him. Because I feel like I did the work, I've done the work and I have gotten, I have forgiveness for both my mother and father but it's surprising you can go even deeper, you know, into the realm of healing, you know. And I think when we get sober and we get into recovery, that's what starts happening as we we tap into this other realm, uh, you know, because like I've, I often say is like when I first got sober, the only language I spoke was victimese, you know. <laughs> And it, it was victimese. like I was victimese. I was like fluent in victimese. I, Girl, I get that. Yeah. Mother's fault, my father's fault, my husband's fault, um, you know, anybody else. And then, but owning this shit, you know, and owning it um, in my writing and creative writing has been uh, a deeper dive for me. A deeper dive for you to metabolize all that pain from the past you know, you, you said a few words that really struck me. You used the words compassion, empathy, and forgiveness. And in my mind, those are all things that lead us to that place of peace. Um, but before we get there, do you want to just kind of recap a little bit? Like we, we, I'll leave a link to your first episode where you kind of go into the deep dive of your, you know, your recovery journey. But do you want to kind of go over a little bit about what your life was like and what led you to that label of incorrigible? As a teen? Yeah, well, you can pick it up wherever you want, but I'm just curious, like, after your mother died, well, tell me a little bit about your mom, you know, what happened and then what happened after she died. Okay, so my mother was a paranoid schizophrenic and had psychotic breaks, you know, um, a lot, and she was constantly trying to kill herself, you know, or, or regularly trying to kill herself. And as um, kids, we'd often get in the way, you know. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, you know, she might turn on the gas in the, in the house and we would be in the house and uh, the fire department would come. So in any case, it was uh, the first seven years of my life, the development stage that they say is when the kid is brain the architecture of the brain is being constructed the default I was, mode network yes <laughs> fight flight freeze or fold mm -hmm. constantly cortisol pacing through my system so um she did kill herself when i was seven years old and my my dad didn't tell me because you know like i said it was uh that was the time you didn't tell kids they're resilient they'll get over it and I found out later that she killed herself. And I was angry. I was really angry. Um, I was angry for him lying. I was angry for the betrayal I lost. Because he, he disconnected from all of her relatives. And I felt like he deprived me of my relationship with my cousins on my mother's side. He just cut us off and kind of went into this self-imposed exile. In any case, I was angry. I started to act out. I said I'd never, ever, ever be like my mother. And like 
I don't know about you, but saying never is like giving the universe the exact coordinates <laughs> to where you're going to later I'm land. I'm never going to be rich. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I'm never going to be rich. I'm never, yeah. We should just Can never at that? all. Okay, sorry. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. No, no, that's good. Okay. Um, so you were so, angry because you were, you were lied to. They both, you were lied to. I was lied to. And I, as a, you know, as a kid, I felt betrayed. How old were you when you found out? Uh, about 13, right before. Oh, rough age. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. I found out, I, this is in the book, Incorrigible. I found out from my, my housekeeper. My dad oh. had a housekeeper who, who was she turned into you. his drinking buddy. She told me. She goes, I think you have a right to know the truth. And she goes, I want you to know that your mother killed herself. And so I just go, what, you know, what, you know, and she had turned into my father's drinking buddy. And so, um, you know, she was probably tipsy, you know, when she told us, yeah. and so I confronted him and of course he said, you know, you were too young to know, blah, blah, blah. So, but I was still pissed off Mm -hmm. and never having any of the tools or never addressing the loss and the grief of my mother. I should say Mm -hmm. that I never went to her funeral. You know, like that is a place where, you know, you get to grieve or, you know, you get a better understanding of what death is. Not to say that a seven-year-old can even find a language to, to describe what it feels like to lose a mother and like, now, how do I navigate the world? So um, all of that led up to me uh, either, well, drinking, finding alcohol, a way for me to not care, mm-hmm. you know, as a way for me to not be self-conscious. It was a oh, way yeah. for me to operate in the world, a world where I didn't want to be, you know, and, uh, Oh, I can do this. You know, I can do this if I'm high. This this works. Mm-hmm. You know. So I found alcohol and um, uh, started running away. Started just like my, you know, uh, my GPS. You know, once I drink, I lose all connection with my GPS or my internal guidance yes. system. Yeah. And so that started happening and you know, getting arrested from, with the police. For what? Uh, yeah. And then to the point where finally, um, uh, my dad, you know, we went to court in the juvenile system and he said, told the judge, I don't know what to do with her anymore. You know, I can't control her. And I mean, that's true. I was out of control. Um, but that's when they labeled me incorrigible and sent me to juvenile hall. What did you get arrested for? That time it was runaway. Oh, you can get a. Oh, I didn't know you could get arrested for that. Yeah. Okay, so you got arrested for running away, and they just labeled you incorrigible, and then put you in juvenile hall. Well, when I when I ran away, I I mean, I can you know clarify this. When I ran away, I did get picked up by some. Some guys, me and my girlfriend got picked up from some guys and they they were selling drugs out in the valley, um, you know, so we we didn't know they were big drug dealers. Oh, oh my so, God. 
I wasn't charged with drugs. I was only charged with runaway, but we were in a kind of precarious situation with guys that were dealing drugs. And so when the doors got kicked down, um, you know, me and Tara, um, I don't know, I, cha- I might have changed her name in the book, but uh, we were hauled off for being runaways. We weren't charged uh-huh. because we didn't know. So, so, you know, from there I went to court and uh, because my dad threw his hands up with me and didn't know what to do, uh, they stamped that incorrigible on me. And actually, I, di- I didn't tell you this, the book cover of Incorrigible is the first page of my rap sheet. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> You're so yes. clever. Isn't that great? I, those of you on uh, the listening on the podcast will not see the uh, devilish glint in Wendy's eye. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, my God. That, that's brilliant. The rap sheet. You had a rap sheet. What was that? 14? 14. Yeah. Wow. It's only page one. Book three will be page two, <laughs> three, four. <laughs> you got a lot of stories. You got to break it off in pieces so that we can digest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to digest. It's, I mean, it's so uh, incredible that to be on this side of it, sharing this story with this perspective, you know. Oh, my goodness. Because you deal with a lot of teens now, right? I deal with teens. I work at an adolescent treatment for mental health. Mental and, health. Um, you know, uh, I talk to the parents that are just dealing with these kids that are struggling, cutting themselves, suicide mm. attempts, suicide ideation, trauma, um, well, gender dysmorphia and trans. Is that, all, a, is that a huge thing now? Huge, huge. A lot of that. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, and... Um, so I'm talking to parents, trying to get them help, you know, and when they call me with their kids that have cut themselves, you know, I mean, what if I said, oh, I'm sorry, your kid sounds incorrigible, you know, it, it's like that that would not happen today, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, it happens in the juvenile justice system, but it doesn't happen in trauma informed care. Right. And, um, we offer trauma-informed care. And uh, so it's like, you know, I can see how my experience can help somebody else, you know, which gives deep meaning to um, not only this book, you know, because in ways, I when I was writing it during COVID, I was thinking of the kids. I was thinking of the kids that we are helping, you know, at Polaris and, um, you know, it's just because I've been, I've been the teen. I've been the mother with the teen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You have two I've, boys. I have two boys. Yeah. Yeah. I so remember I, that because I have two boys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've been on both sides. So, yeah. you know, and during COVID um, kid, I mean, we've been dealing like with a, I think a trauma with this whole uncertainty and like what's going to happen in the kids. Gosh, the isolation alone. Isolation with their parents who a lot of them don't get along with anyway. And then they're like, everything stops and you're locked in a house, you know, and all those buttons are being pushed. It's like, it's no wonder there were so many calls coming in still a lot of calls coming in. 
um, as kids are coming out to go back to school, they're activated and they, they're afraid, you know? And, um, so, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's really personal, my writing. I mean, obviously it's about my life, but it's mm-hmm. personal in the fact that I wanted to use my life as a tool to help other people, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, why did I go through all of that? If I don't, if I, it's, if I don't use it to help somebody else, then it's like, you know, what's the point? All for naught. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's really the focus of this podcast is people tell their recovery stories. And then we find out that we are more alike than different. And, you know, that because we're so, so much alike that, if I can do it, you can do it type of thing too. So exactly. Can you, can we touch a little bit on your recovery story? Um, you sort of alluded that, you know, you were, you were drinking at this young age and that was like a solution for you. Um, and then it's, I know that it escalated for you. Um, maybe kind of touch on sort of the places that it took you and then what happened to you that you decided to get sober. So, um, yeah, I, it did escalate. I, you know, after alcohol, I found drugs. Um, I found, um, you know, a variety of drugs. I got hooked up with a guy, had two kids at some point trying to like, you know, function in the world. But again, I, like I said, I couldn't metabolize my feelings. I couldn't navigate the world. And, um, you know, uh, it's a progressive disease or progressive condition. I don't care what you call it, but it progressed with me until the point of um, I started doing methamphetamine. You know, um, let me just say that uh, I did end up going to juvenile halls and jails and I went to state prison and uh, uh, just couldn't stay out of trouble. And then during the early nineties, when I started doing methamphetamine, I, um, had that psychotic break where I, like I already said, shot the other woman winged her (laughs) and ended up in the County jail. And that's really where the story of recovery starts right there, you know, but what was different this time, it was like, um, you know, one more time I'm in the, I'm like living the same story over and over again. And I've been blaming everybody else for my life. But at this point, I had the realization that I was the common denominator in the story. I'm the common denominator. It's like, I can keep continuing to blame everybody. And I did for a while. And, but I am the common denominator. And if I really, you know, if I wanted to pay him back because he moved the other woman into my bed when I went to jail, as you know. Yeah. And um, so I would, you know, was angry and I wanted to pay him back. And I had this realization, you know, the best way to pay him back would be to be a success. (laughs) But what is what is success anyway? You know, um, was it. Uh, zeros on my bank account? Was it a, a house? Was it another man? What, what the hell is it? 
And um, all I knew, the only answer I came up with is I'd have to be sober to find out what success is. You know, that I knew intuitively that I wouldn't be able to be successful unless I got sober. So that was my dream in the county jail, you know, was to get sober. I went to, um, and when I got out of county jail after a year, I went to a, um, uh, a woman and children's place. And my older son is in juvenile hall. So he's walking in my footsteps the same way I walked in my mother's footsteps. Hmm. And then I get my younger son, Ricky, and um, we stay at this transitional living. Okay, so I, I didn't fully think, I didn't, well, I didn't think I could get sober or stay sober. You know, I didn't think it could happen for me. You know, I thought that it was um, something that happened to other people. And I'm glad that you're able to do it, but you don't understand where I've been. Mm. You don't know where, what I've done. And I was, I had a lot of shame, yeah. you know, as we often, many of us do, um, that I couldn't, do, you know, tell anybody what I had done. And as a result, I did drink after I got out. But um, if you recall in the mother load, on Mother's Day, a kid is shot in a drive-by in front of the transitional living on 11th and Pico, which is a busy, usually a busy, it was like, it was like a Sunday night late. And um, he's laying in the, in the intersection. And I went to this kid that was dying. He took four gunshots, uh, you know, and... Um, this was somebody's child laying in the intersection on Mother's Day. And I was there for him in a way that I had never been there for anybody in my life. Um, usually I was a type that, you know, I'd always want something if I, you know, but this, I didn't want anything from that kid. I only wanted him to live. Well, he didn't live, you know, he didn't live. Uh, the, the police came, the paramedics came. I found out the next day he died. But that night I had a spiritual experience while I was, I was up in my um, place and I was like freaking out about what had happened. And my, uh, my son Ricky was asleep and I felt a presence come into the room. You know, and this presence, like I went from one instant feeling like total anxiety to the next instant feeling like absolute peace, wow. like everything is all right. I mean, it was a white light variety spiritual experience. And it totally, it you know, it transformed me, not instantly there, but in hindsight, it was the, it was the key to changing my life. It was it changed my life to the point where I thought, well, was that God, that, that light, or was that the boy that came to me? You know, oh. I thought maybe it was the boy's spirit came to thank me for being there with him as he was dying, you know, as he was transitioning, you know. Um, for a long time, I wanted to find his mother and tell him I was there. You know, your son wasn't alone, but I never did. Uh but that, that's when I got serious about recovery and got 
let's say, out of the bleachers and onto the playing field Mm -hmm. and started participating in my recovery. And um, in that, what that means is I built up a community around me. Um, I started getting involved. I I went back to the juvenile halls that I had been in as a kid. I talked to those girls. I saw how my experience was useful to them and how they related. And then it was also for me, like going to Silmar Juvenile Hall where I'd been and talking to those girls was almost like reaching through a portal in time to the girl that I abandoned when I was 13, when I was 14 and getting, and that's what I think recovery is. Uh, You know, for me, recovery is integrating all of those aspects of my, all those pieces of myself that I left abandon every time I took a drink, every time I, I, you know, uh, ran away. It's like every time I gave myself away and didn't say no to somebody I didn't want to be with, it was like, and I go into some of that in incorrigible. It's like not having the boundaries, not having the self-love or the self-worth to say no to a man. Um, but um, so that my recovery has been about one integrating the parts of me that I abandoned, and and two, I, I, two is the healing the relationship with my sons. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, uh, that's what mother load was about. It's like how do you how do you heal a relationship with your kids? I mean, how do you you know? Um, once you lose your mind, how do you get it back? You know, and how do you, are you restored to sanity? And, um, you know, it was for me, it was like, it meant, it meant everything to me to show up for my kids and make a living amends to them by being present despite what was coming down the pike. Cause like I, I've said, I've had challenges with my own boys and, you know, one was in juvenile hall, Ricky started acting out and just being that kind of anchor for them, you know, and, and being present, being sober, a sober mom who didn't like, go, oh, oh man, this would be so much easier if I had something to drink. You know, mm-hmm. I just stayed present. And as a result of that staying present, I was able to you know, heal the relationships with my boys. And I'm very close to both Ricky and Jerry today. I was able, you know, uh, to make amends to my ex-husband. You know, it's huge, huge, you know. And I mean, that's like not who I was when I was in the county jail. And like the in the county jail, I think that at that time, my bandwidth was so narrow of life experience. Like if I never could have imagined that, like if a cellmate would have said, Wendy, hang in there. One day you're going to write a book. No, no, no. You're going to write two books, maybe three books. You know, I would have never believed it. You know, if they would have told me you're going to travel. You know, like I've traveled. I just went to Hawaii recently. I swam with dolphins again. It was wild dolphins and it was amazing. 
I couldn't see my life like that. But that realization that I had that like, what is, what does success mean? It means sobriety. It means sobriety. It means that that is my foundation. That is my foundation. Being sober, being present, addressing whatever comes down the pike, you know, and sometimes I don't like it, you know, sometimes I get activated like COVID, you know, when it first, when it first hit, all of that fight, flight, freeze stuff was activated for me because of the uncertainty, you know, but the, but the difference between now and back then is that I recognize it. I can, I go, Oh, I'm activated. This is pushing my button. Mm -hmm. You know, what do I do? What do I do when I'm activated? Well, I have a meditation practice that I do daily. I pray, you know, I do that daily, sometimes all day long. Um, I write. Writing for me is one of the most therapeutic tools that I wish everybody could tap into. I also do writing groups for um, different treatment centers. And um, writing, it's also gives me a portal to my past. It also is about resurrecting my mother and father who have passed. It's resurrecting their spirits. Mm. And it's like looking, it's like I said, like a deep dive at what was happening and how they felt. Like I have to be in my father's skin. I have to be in his mind to try to empathize and see where he was coming from. You know, and that take that takes me back. So I'm resurrecting their spirits when I write, and I find great therapeutic value in that. I love. The, I mean, the writing process is so magical. I had a friend say that there's a BS filter in your elbow, and when you write, the truth comes out. <laughs> it's true. I know. It is so true because you're not censoring yourself it's right. just like something happens when you take pen to paper yeah sometimes i don't know what i think until i write it's kind of interesting because yeah. yeah. we can be so self-deceived i have so many questions to ask you you know it's kind of up in my world right now there's a lot of women that i've been working with you know that they struggle with things like anger you know, maybe it's anger because of self-abandonment. Like you talked a lot about self-abandonment and boundaries and things like that. And for me, it's like that self-betrayal. We're taught so young, you know, especially the women. You know, I guess the men too, but I ain't a man. So right. <laughs> I think I see everything through the lens of what it was like to be a woman, right? And I see these women that are conditioned to, you know, be nice girls, don't get angry, you know, stuff that shit, you know, nobody wants to see you're ugly, you know, be cute, be pretty, be sweet, make everybody else feel nice. And, um, you know, the anger as, as a result of that, especially later on in life, you know, I'm a middle-aged woman. I deal with a lot of other middle-aged women who are just like so detached from their anger you know, they've, so when you talk about, you know, self-abandonment and self-betrayal, 
Uh, you talked a little about boundaries too, because that seems like a logical next step, right? First, we get in touch with the anger and then um, you keep using the word metabolizing. We need to metabolize that. Can you, how did, how did you, how were you able to do that later? You know, I know you do like recover, you know, 12 step stuff, but like, what was that experience like for you to metabolize that anger and stop doing the self betrayal? Well, I'll go back to when I was in jail, when my husband moved the, uh, the other woman into my, into my bed. <laughs> that sounds so okay. bad. Oh my God. So bad. I mean, it's like crazy. Um, but I was, you know, I had nothing. I had no drugs to take the edge off. So I didn't know it then. I think I found a way. I, I did poison pen letters to him. Ooh, what's oh. that? Well, I just wrote him letters. I didn't have a, a stamp, you know, to send it to him, thank God. But <laughs> I wrote letters to him, just like angry, raging letters, you know. And so it's something, it's a tool I use even today is writing poison pen letters and giving people permission to write it down, you know, and don't censor yourself. Just let it rip on paper, you know, and then burn it or, or shred it or flush it. But like I wrote so many poison pen letters in jail. So that was my first, I didn't know then that I was going to find this therapeutic tool. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, and, you know, other, other ways that I uh, try to get clients to get in touch with, um, you know, things that are going on is like, uh, if they are angry, what is the anger saying to them? Like, take me inside your head, you know, or I'll use it with resistance. If you are resistant to living your best life, tell me what the resistance is saying to you. So we start a conversation because it's then we're, we're like what you resist persists. Yeah. So we get, we're getting intimate with the anger. Mm-hmm. We're going there. Let's just go there. Let's go get, let's get intimate with anger. What does it want you to do? What does it want you to say? What does it want from you? What is it physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritual? You write that down. <clears throat> now, the Wendy, the ideal Wendy, the Wendy that isn't angry, the one that the, the way I'd like to show up in my life has a conversation with that, writes back to that person. You know, it writes back to the anger, you know, and has a conversation. So, so the Wendy now, who I am now, is talking to the, to the rage in me that I've been resisting. Mm. So, like, let's just let it out. Let's just, like, get to know it. You know, it's get an intimate relationship with my anger, you know, and allow it because, you know, it's like, I mean, we hear things that it's not okay to be anger, angry. And that like, that is not giving us permission. Like, okay, it's, it's not healthy for me to wallow in anger, but if I need to get in touch with it, I'm not going to do a spiritual bypass by jumping over the anger. Yes, girl. Yes. No so I have, have to go into the anger first, mm-hmm. acknowledge, you know, anger is not an, a good space for me to be in. Yeah. Okay. But it doesn't, I don't transcend humanity, you know? Right. So let's, let's talk about what's really going on. And I, you know, 
I was, you know, as a drug and alcohol counselor, as somebody I, I could, I learned. And as a writer, I learned to talk about what's really going on. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Because part of my recovery was working in um, detox, was working at uh, prestigious residential treatment. Um, You know, so I, I had a lot of experience with having to confront the disease, uh, you know, or relapse and all of that. So I learned to be, you know, a straight shooter, you know, and um, be honest because, yeah, I mean, yeah. And writing helps me be honest. Yeah. And because it's safe and it's private. And for me, it like releases that blanket of denial. You know, if we have denial, if we're working with people that are wrestling with denial, it's because they're in so much pain, right? And that doesn't deserve condemnation or judgment. It deserves empathy, right? Yeah. That, that denial is there to protect you. And right. I find that And I wonder if this is what you experience in your work with the teens, that the denial is not released until they feel safe enough to tell the truth. Well, it's, I think that with the teens that everything in our facility is about making them feel safe. Oh yeah. You know, it's like everything, great thought, I mean, goes into finding the right people with the right patience, the right temperament, the right intention, if you will, Sure. Uh, that uh, I haven't found that in every place that I've worked, but I, I am proud to say I've found it where I work now. Mm. Polaris, um, is it? Polaris Teen Center. Yeah. Polaris. It's like there it's, it we're a small model so that, um, Everyone there, you know, is, I mean, just, just as we screen everybody, all the kids that come in, because we're not about filling beds. If a kid is not a fit, we don't give them a bed. We, you know, we suggest maybe you try this place, but we screen the the staff as well. Mm. And because we're in Los Angeles, we have a lot of um, really uh, talented facilitators in their domain, whether it be somatic experiencing, Mm -hmm. you know, in their domain, we can really hire people that bring something completely unique to the table. So as you can hear from the tone of what I'm saying is that um, I, I, you know, at this point in my life cannot represent somebody that I don't admire the work and feel a deep pride, you know, at what we do. So when I'm talking to a parent on the phone um, or I'm talking to somebody that maybe is a referral source, I'm, I'm, you know, it's sincere. It's sincere. And so uh, I just, I can't fake it anymore. You know, I just can't fake it. You know, I this can't. is like, I can't Too go out. That bullshit. I can't sell I can't. something I don't believe in, you know, and yeah. I believe in what we're doing. We're helping people, kids. If it, if I would have gotten the help I needed I when I was stamped incorrigible, like the kids are getting where I work. I mean, you know, I may not have had these books to write. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I went there. I went there because I had to, but I, 
But um, I think that a lot of kids don't have to go there. That there's more help available today. Yeah, there's like that. Uh, I don't know who said it. I feel so bad for not knowing who all said all these amazing things. But it's like, you know, we're rest- pulling these people out of the river. But at some point, we need to go upstream and find out where they're falling in. Yeah. Right. And let's, let's it's stop so it there. True. We need to just yeah. end the suffering. There's so much suffering and it's needless. It's needless suffering. So it's, um, I'm so grateful that there are people like you, you know, I, I told you, uh, before we started that I have a son, both my boys have had struggles at different times. Like my older son, when he was in high school was cutting and was like, had suicidal depression. That was rough. That was a rough period. And, you know, for us as a family and we were sober and had access to resources, but we were, we were lost, lost in that arena. And so it was so we had some people that were like you that that helped us through that. Um, and then my younger son has had some issues, too. And so I just am so grateful for the people who have that special sensitivity that you have. It's like a superpower. Thank God that, you know, you're you've dedicated your life to helping others in the way that you have, because, listen, as a mom, there is no other pain that gets me to my core than watching my son suffer. Ugh, watching my it makes me want to cry. Yeah, I mean, I nothing takes me down as when my kids are suffering, you know, so I, I remember that when a parent calls this, you know, and sometimes someone might sound out of their mind, but I remember what it feels like to have a son or I, well, my case, sons that are suffering. Mm-hmm. I was out of my mind because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to yeah. go or who to turn to, you know? So that experience, my life experience helps me. You know, it helps me stay grounded. It helps me be there for them. And in all fairness, we are out of our minds by the time we call you. Thank God you're patient and understand. I try. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I I hope you have good boundaries, but yeah. Oh, no, I, I do. I have good boundaries. I do have good boundaries, but you know, I mean, um, but I, I have like conversations with myself. Remember she's, She's this mom scared oh, and it's scared. Be, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what wouldn't we do for our kids, I know, you know, right? to save our kids. Yeah. I will act the fool to protect yeah. my children. That when the mama bear comes out. Oh man. I mean, I'm half Mexican. I will straight go Chola. <laughs> I have made more than one teacher in elementary school cry. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> don't you hurt my baby i'll come after serious. you serious lord have mercy well listen i i don't i am so grateful for our time together i learned so much i wrote down so many things that you said i'll put them all in the show notes but yes everybody must get your books i feel like it should come in a two-pack two-pack it's gonna soon be a three-pack it's gonna be a three-pack yeah but don't wait for the three just just get the support my girl wendy and her work i mean listen if a woman who is trying to help your babies survive if you don't deserve to who does i don't know 
Right. <laughs> let's, all, let's all support my girl Wendy they can buy your book at wendyadamson.com um, I know that they can get both your books Motherload and Encourageable on Amazon um, and thank you for the work that you're doing at the Polaris Teen Center It's you have earned your wings my friend well thank you for the work you're doing here just getting yes. these interviews and talking to such diverse, interesting people and having a conversation that needs to be had. It needs to be had. Man, did you hear that that uh, stat lately about the how many OD, I think it was 81,000 people OD'd uh, in a 12-year month period. I think they ended up, ended, ended the count sometime in May of 2021. A lot of people are suffering. Scary. Yeah, scary. it's really it's really sad. But let's pull people out of the room. Let's keep them from falling in, right? That's right, girl. These are these are important uh, solutions that you talked about. I, you know, the poison pen letter. Ooh, that's a good one. It's really it helped me. Yeah. Who knew? Who you knew? know, I. You know, and yeah. I heard somebody gave me this other exercise about writing a letter from my inner child like from my inner little girl and I started writing and I was like oh damn she's pissed (laughs) and you can do with your left hand as well as because it's it engages a different Different part part of your brain brain. genius you're a genius Wendy Well, listen, thank you so much. I'm going to send everybody to your website. I'll leave links to everything. Is there anything else that you, is there any way people can get a hold of you or just go to your website or are you on social media? I'm on social media, um, Wendy Adamson on Facebook. And my um, Instagram is number two Jedi, number two Jedi. Please follow me there. I'm uh also having a book launch. I don't know if this will be out in time, but I'm having a book launch on the, let's see, I just want to go um, August 25th. That is open to, um, to anyone that wants to go, you know, where is it in LA? It's going to be virtual (gasps) so that anybody can go. It's like, and I'm going to be talking to Dr. Michelle Butler Okay. who is, um, the, it works at Polaris Teen Center. And we're going to be talking about the book and talking about adolescence and treatment. So it might be a timely, uh, you know, yes. it's, it's, I can send you the link. Please do. I'll, so, okay. So to, as we record today is the 12th, um, I was going to publish it next week. Maybe we can bump it up for you. <laughs> I'll send you the link. It's going to be open to anybody. It's virtual and it's going to, it's, it's going to be fun and it's going to be, um, educational. A lot of moms in recovery listen to my podcast. So I will, yeah, yeah, I think you will get some good, a good turnout. It'll be very helpful. All right. Well, yeah, shoot me the links. I'll include it in the show notes. And Wendy, thank you so much for joining me again. You are such a love. Thanks. Thanks so much for all you do. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. We'll talk real soon. All right. Bye. (laughs) 
One last thing before you go, if you enjoyed the podcast today, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. And if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast and help me keep the lights on, you can do so by visiting odatchat.com. There's a donation button or membership button on the right hand side. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us.